Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 4, it reads this way. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and this is what we want to focus on today, and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I will be their God. I want to talk to you today on the subject of preserving promise. Preserving promise. Many times uh, when we think about promise, uh, when we think about the promises of God, many times we think about receiving the promise, uh, believing for the promise, possessing the promise. But what do you do with the promise once it's been obtained? What is the instructions or the best way to steward over a promise that God has given us after we've received it, obtained it? How do we maintain that? And here in this uh, section, many of us are familiar with the story of Abraham. We're familiar with the man uh, Abraham at this point is 75 years old, his, his wife Sarah Uh, 10 years younger than him, and they have not been able to have children. They have not been able to father and mother and, and, and been blessed with the opportunity to have a family. And so God... Uh, because his goal is not just to get us to heaven, but his God is to get us in the earth and bring heaven to earth, is wanting to increase and advance his efforts through you and I. And so he's looking for a nation. He's looking for a people. He's looking for a group that will trust him, believe in him, will, will see him as their father, and will follow his precepts, his ways, and accomplish his will in the earth. And so he goes not to an individual that's got 12 sons and overflowing and, and those that are uh, fruitful in their uh, uh, childbirth and, and child giving. He finds a man and a woman that are unable to have kids. And not only that, he doesn't go to them when they're in their 20s or even in their 30s. He finds them when they are well beyond the age of even having children. This is who God picks. This is who God finds because God is a God of faith. 
God is a God of potential. And God is not moved by what things look like on the outside. God is not a God that uh, sees uh, external situations as limitations. He sees challenges and problems as opportunities to show his glory and reveal his plan and his purpose. So he doesn't go to the man that's having all kinds of family or all kinds of children. He finds the man that can't have any and he picks him out when he's well beyond childbearing years. This is Abraham. This is the man that we know of as the father of many nations. This is the man that we know is given a son, Isaac. And from Isaac, we have these descendants and these generations. And here, what God is declaring is not just a promise for Abraham. He's not just declaring something that's going to be a blessing to Abraham. He says, this promise that I'm giving you, it's called a covenant here in this verse, but it's a promise. I'm not just giving it to you, Abraham, but I'm giving it to your children and to your children's children. What he's saying is, is this promise is generational. My covenant is not just going to start with you and stop with you, but it is designed to go beyond you. This promise is going to reach your descendants. This promise is going to reach your generations and your children's generations and their children's generations. And today, you and I can receive from the Abrahamic covenant. You and I can receive on this covenant and this promise that was made to Abraham thousands of years ago. You and I can still receive from the promise that he gave to this man. It was designed to live beyond him. Now, promises are one of the things um, that I equate with fathers. Uh, Any dad uh, in here knows at some point in your life, you've made a promise, whether intentionally or accidentally, to your children. And although you might forget, they don't. I've never once in my life, in eight years so far with Camden, had him forget about a promise that I made. And if I use the word promise, I better plan on coming through with that. I better plan on following through with whatever follows I promise. And so I've got to watch my words, uh, you know, because he'll ask it now. Do you promise? Uh, probably. Probably. You said promise, but if I make a promise, he's going to hold me to it, and he should. He should, because fathers should be known and should be equated with their words. They should be known as men men of their words, and so when God makes a promise, you can better believe he plans on following through. When God makes a covenant with you, he, make, he is He's telling you, I intend to bring this to pass. Later on in the Old Testament, we find out that Abraham and Sarah, spoken of both of them, it says that they believed that he was faithful to perform that which he promised. Faithful to perform that which he promised. It takes a childlike faith to believe in the promises of God takes a childlike faith. If this is any indication of how God's promises go, God doesn't consult your situation to determine a promise for over your life. 
God doesn't consult your uh, job situation. God doesn't consult your marital situation. God doesn't consult your environment. God doesn't consult your enemy. God doesn't consult your problem. When he declares a promise, it is meant to be performed in your life regardless of where you end up, regardless of what it looks like. He goes on in this covenant and says, here's what's gonna happen. Uh, this, this generation is going to end up in slavery in bondage to another people, which we know is later on the Egyptians. The Egyptians put them in slavery over 400 years of captivity. That doesn't look like a promised land. That doesn't look like a blessing. That doesn't look like what God declared to Abraham back here. But again, God knows how to work out and perform his promise regardless of what we're in or regardless of what we go through. And so you just have to know that. I'm not ending up here. I'm just going through it. Regardless of what the situation looks like, we're all gonna be faced with contrary situations. We're all gonna be in opportunities that are contradictory to the promise that God declared. What God does is he gives you a promise to let you know what the outcome's gonna be regardless of what the path looks like. God wants you to believe in an outcome regardless of the path. God wants you to believe in where you're going to end up regardless of what you go through. Is somebody with me today? This is what God is trying to do in our lives today. He's declared things over your lives, blessings, promises, provision. There are things that you right now today are standing on, believing in that you're in a situation that really looks opposite and could cause you to question what God promised but you have to continue to remain faithful, continue to have that childlike faith as a son of God, daughter of God, child of God, to believe that the promise of God can come to pass. Well, we know ultimately the Israelites, they come out of Egypt, delivered by a man named Moses. Moses goes in, we know about uh, the 10 plagues, delivers them out of the hand of Pharaoh. We know about the parting of the Red Sea. We know about uh, the Egyptians dying in the flood, dying, uh, or not in the flood, but in the sea. The very sea that they walked across on dry ground was the very same waters that swallowed up the Egyptians and they were no more. We know about God's miraculous power in the wilderness. We know about God uh, working on the behalf of the Israelites, fighting their battles for we know about the water coming out of the rock. We know about manna on the ground and birds bringing uh, meat and dinner to them in the evenings. We know about the cloud that would guide them by day and the fire that would guide them by night. God was working on the behalf of these Israelites, even in an environment that was contradictory to the promised land that he had already promised them. They had to remain faithful to the promise. Remain faithful to believe. I heard uh, one person say that uh, faithfulness is God's faith in me. We need faith in God, yes, absolutely. We need to believe God at his word. But did you know that God wants to believe in you? That God wants to have faith in you, that you will execute and follow through with what he's placed on your life and what he's directed you to do and called you to do? Absolutely. 
We bear just as much responsibility to see the promise of God come to pass as he does. I don't bear the responsibility to perform it. I I bear the responsibility to believe it. It's not my job to perform God's purpose. It's my job to believe that his purpose is still yes and amen, even if I'm in contrary situations. Even if, am I, even if I am in environments that contradict the promise that God gave in the beginning. We go thousands of years back and these Egyptians knew this promise. They knew that this territory existed. They knew that there was a Canaan land. They knew that they were moving onward to the promise of God and to what he had set before them. They knew what they were walking towards and working towards and they knew that he needs to, he's going to deliver us into it but we are going to have to step into this promise and believe him at his word. But now over in Judges chapter 2 we jump, a let, jump ahead here and we see some discouraging words. Judges chapter 2. At this point, uh, Moses and the original group of Israelites that had come out of uh, Egypt, gone into the wilderness, died in the wilderness. They did not make it to the promised land. You've heard us say this many times that God was able to take them out of Egypt, but he was not able to get Egypt out of them. They had a slavery mentality and they did not believe. They did not believe. And because of their doubt and unbelief, because of their grumbling and complaining, they adapted to their surroundings instead of remaining firm in God's word. And so they ended up dying in the wilderness, wandering around for 40 years, died. But then a new man rises up, Joshua. Joshua and Caleb refused to believe the report of their enemies. They refused to be moved by what they saw. They chose to stand on the promise that God had given. And they got to take a new generation, a new group of Israelites into the land that God had promised. They've possessed it. They've possessed it. They've gone in. They've seen God work. They begin to defeat these enemies. Uh, They begin to take over towns like Jericho. And they see the purpose of God fulfilled. Because God promised them that they would overtake this territory. God promised them that this land is yours, but you've got to go in and fight the battles. They went in. They fought the battles. They believed in faith. They walked around those walls. The walls come down. And many other battles like that, that they had to fight. And now we have a group of people that is no longer walking towards the promise. They're living in the promise. They've now possessed The promised land. But Judges chapter 2 verse 11 says this. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the gods of the very territories that they were supposed to overtake and go in and change and make an impact for the kingdom of God. They became like what was around them. They forsook the Lord God Of what? Their fathers. 
who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. How many of you know that fathers spoil their kids? But here in this state, the enemy is despoiling them. The things that God has set aside for you, the provisions that God meant for you to take hold of and take part of and enjoy and, and, and be to your benefit, now they're having enemies come in and take those very things away from them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly uh, from the way in which their fathers walked. Their fathers did it. Their fathers walked it, lived it. They possessed the promise. But it says that their children walked away. They failed to walk in the way that their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, that's Abraham, that's Moses, that's Joshua, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Notice here that God is expecting the children to follow in the way, in the path of the fathers. I already showed you that the promise that God gave to Abraham was for generations. It was generational. It wasn't just for Abraham to follow. It wasn't just for the Israelites that came out of Egypt to follow. And it wasn't even for the, uh, the Israelites, the generation of Israelites that entered into the promised land. It was meant to be passed down. It was meant to be handed down. And notice that God is holding the fathers accountable for the ways of the children. God is holding the fathers accountable for the ways of the children. And I want to be very clear as I was in the beginning that this is not just for dads, but this is speaking very highly and heavily to fathers and our responsibility to pass down what was handed to us. 
preserving promise. I don't know about you, but it's just as dangerous, I believe, to lose a promise than to never gain it at all. Believe it's just as dangerous to lose a promise that was once possessed than to never have the faith or the ability to possess the the promise in the first place. What we need to be seeing in our generations and what we need to be seeing in our households and what we need to be seeing just in our country, our culture, our society is more of what we believe and how we behave and what we walk in must be handed down. It must be passed on. Much of what we deal with in our nation today has to do with fatherlessness. And you can agree with me or not, but much of what we deal with in our society, in our culture, can be resorted to the lack of fathers. I didn't say dads, fathers in our country especially in our country. But as a culture and a society, many of the problems that we deal with is because we're missing the male role. We're missing the man. And I'm not talking just about through divorce or separation um, or even through a death in the family. Uh, There are uh, dads that are in the house but are not present, disconnected, It's a societal issue and it goes directly against and directly contradicts God's plan for the home, God's plan for society. I can tell you right now, I I remember um, a, a pastor when we were first getting started, he told me this. He said, one thing you need to understand is that the people that you pastor, you'll find out many of them, you'll have to parent. Because of inaccuracies in parenting, and training in raising up children, that many times the shepherd of God's house has to take on the parenting of the sheep, helping them understand and discover things that they ought to have discovered as a child or in the environment of the home in the family structure according to God's design. You know, I I think as even as a church and as Christians, we have lost sight of what it means to have God's best. I believe we have. And this is not a, a word of condemnation. This is not a word to bear down on on the societal issues and for us to feel the weight and the pressure. I just want us to see the overall uh, struggle and the overall challenge that our society faces and we could resort it all the way back to the family structure. And if we had the proper parenting and the proper family structure according to God's word, we wouldn't expect the government to do it. We wouldn't expect the schools to do it. We wouldn't even expect the churches to do it, we would take on the responsibility as moms and dads and parents to be able to speak into the lives of those that God has placed in our care that we steward over them well. 
And the enemy is severely attacking and severely after the family structure. Number one, he doesn't even want the children coming into the planet. And so we see the numerous health issues that even babies are born with, the ones that are born. And now we deal with this issue that if the enemy doesn't take them out, we will through abortions. That somehow we've allowed and adopted the mentality that it's okay to make the decision on whether a life continues or even comes into this earth, even exists or not. We want to play God and determine whether they have potential to be a living uh, uh, human being or not. And I don't get political because I don't believe this is even a political situation. This is a spiritual situation. I don't care what one side says or the other. This isn't a right or left thing. This is a Bible thing. God values life, the sanctity of life. Here at the end of our service, we're gonna be praying over some baby bottles that I hope everyone has been diligent to bring back today. Uh, and, and we want to uh, pray over those. We're gonna send financial support to our local pregnancy support center options now, but we're also gonna send faith along with our finance that they'll continue to reach lives, continue to invest not only in the babies. I was with... Um, I was at Options Now just this past week. They hosted a bunch of pastors and leaders for a luncheon, and I was just there, and they were talking about, uh, you know, some new things that they're doing, and, and, and they have branched their ministry not just to saving the child's life, but to saving the mom's life and the dad's life. And I'll go ahead and make an appeal on their behalf that they are needing male counselors to come into options now and talk with the boyfriends or sometimes even the husbands. And sometimes it's just baby daddy. There's no relationship whatsoever. But sometimes these men will come into the clinic and they are looking for godly men to come in and speak life even into the man. They had an individual stand up before us. Now he's been volunteering there. And said, if we had 10 to 12 more men, could we not come up with 10 to 12 more men right here in Valdosta that could take two, three hours out of their day and sit in a clinic and as men come in, uh, accompanying their partner, uh, accompanying their girlfriend or the individual uh, uh, that's pregnant, to be able to sit down with them and talk with them? Could we maybe come up with five right here in our own church? that would be willing to say, I'll take the time to sit down with this young man. And many times they're seeing these individuals not only make the decision to save the life that they were trying to decide were they gonna abort or not, but it's saving their life because they're coming to Christ. And even within that Options Now clinic, they have limitations of things that they can communicate and can't communicate. But we can come in and we can break every barrier and we can cross every limitation. Absolutely. And so we see that these individuals, one generation, you gotta understand, we are always one generation away from forsaking God. 
Don't, we're not talking about thousands of years later. We're talking about the next generation beyond. One generation goes in, possesses the promised land, and, and, and adheres to, to God's principles and God's standards and God's rule. But unfortunately, it was not handed down. And now we have children that are walking away. Children that are walking away. Today, I want to give you three ways we can preserve promise. Three ways in our society, in our culture, in our homes and in our families, we can preserve promise. Number one, teach the word. Teach the word. Unfortunately, this is an element that has been relegated to pastors and five-fold ministers. This is an element that Lay people and the church body of Christ has not taken up the mantle of teaching the word to their children, to their environment, to their cultures, to their societies. Well, number one, to teach the word, you've got to know the word. A society that loses value for God's word is a society that will forsake God. You can't love God and reject his word at the same time. To teach the word of God means that I personally have to have a value for the word of God. I personally have to have a love for the word of God. I personally have to have a desire for the word of God because the only thing that's gonna come out of me is what goes in me. But we've gotta take up the mantle of teaching the word of God. In Joshua chapter one and verse seven, as uh, God was preparing Joshua and this new generation to go into the promised land, he said this, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. And in that passage in Judges chapter 2, right before uh, we get to the portion that I read in verse 11, in verse 7, it says this. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Parents, let me tell you right now, it's not good enough that you've experienced the goodness of God. It's not good enough that you know the principles and the laws of God. It's not good enough that you're in the word of God. It's not good enough that he's delivered you, saved you, and prepared you for a purpose. We have to do better. We have to hand down what has been passed to us. This is what I know. What is not passed down will eventually be passed up. What is not passed down will eventually be passed up. The generation below, below them missed the promise of God. And look, they're in the promised land. They didn't have to fight the battles their parents fought. See, some of you parents, you had to break addiction cycles 
in your families. Some of you had to break uh, uh, barriers in your families. Some of you parents, you were the first one to go to college. You were the first one to be a CEO, to not work for the man, but be the man. You were the, and now your children are just stepping into what you provided. But that does not excuse them for knowing the word and the principles and the statutes of God's word for themselves. I cannot get my son's provision for him. He will have to be taught how to maintain the standard of the word of God. He will have to be taught how to place a value for the word on his own life. He will have to be taught how to go and get what I provide in his life today. He will have to be taught to one day become a man that goes and gets it for himself. And if I don't pass it down, he will pass it up. We've got to be teaching. You've got a place of value on having your family in the house of God. There's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for abandoning the principles and the standards that God has for the family structure. There is no excuse. You will not stand before Jesus and have any excuse to give him as to why you didn't make a measure and an effort of keeping your family in the house of God. We have more churches on this planet today than we ever have. If you don't like the one that you're at, I can promise you there's another one somewhere else that you can go. And I don't mean that in a hard way. I'm saying that so many times we have this idea that we can't find what we need. It's there. Have your children in the word of God. Half of them have cell phones anyways. They better have a Bible app on this thing. But the sad thing is they can open up an app right next to the Bible app that can help them view things that they should never see. Without your monitoring, don't be distracted. Don't be negligent. In these last days, do not neglect the word of God. You want to know how to keep your kids out of certain danger? Get the word in them. The word will do the job for you. The Holy Spirit will do the job for you. The Holy Spirit will remind them of things You've said, and they will come to recognize pressure situations. They will come to recognize when I'm in an environment that's dangerous to me. They will recognize when my behavior is not in line with God. They will learn to see it on their own and they won't have to have mommy and daddy watching them all the time. If you invest and put what is necessary within them, regardless of what situation they end up in, they will be able to make the necessary decision on their own. I've seen it happen. I've seen 10-year-olds get out of the wrong environment. I've seen five-year-olds say, uh, uh, be, be moved with conviction on the inside. It says, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I've seen five-year-olds make the initiative to go and ask for forgiveness from another child because they did something wrong or said something wrong to them. But yet I watch grown adults that cannot walk in love with one another. It's because they have the word and it hasn't been conflicted yet. See, we've received the word. We've also received measures 
of hate and measures of experience and measures of failure and all these other things that now are tarnishing even the word that we do have within us. No, we've got to teach the word. What is not passed down will eventually be passed up. Number two is correct the focus. How do we preserve promise? How do we ensure that the promise lives beyond us? Number one, we've got to teach the word. Keep the word in front of them. Keep them in environments where the word is getting in them. Teach them to have a healthy habit of being in the word for themselves. Number two is correct the focus. Ultimately, what I'm pointing out here is discipline. And the enemy and the world and our culture has taught us that discipline is unhealthy. They've taught us that discipline is dangerous. And the reason why I've called it correct the focus is because discipline does just that. It helps you become focused on what you need to be doing. Discipline, I'm not just talking about spanking and punishing and, and, and those kind of things, although those are measures that are necessary in a healthy home to take to direct children. The Bible's very clear on that. But discipline simply means to correct and remove distraction. I can tell you right now, a disciplined child is not easily distracted. A disciplined child is not easily distracted. When you have necessary discipline in your life, necessary accountability in your life, what discipline does is it directs your steps. Discipline is simply correction. And I remember I had someone tell me this a long time ago. They said, you only correct what you care about. You only correct what you care about. Correction is one of the greatest indicators that determines value and care. If I care about it, I will make the attempt and the effort to correct it. For example, with this church, I care about this church. I care about this building and this facility. And so there are things that I walk beside and things that I see that I know are out of place and out of line that you would never notice and never see and maybe never give attention to, not because you don't care, but because it's not within your sphere to care. But there's things, when I walk by it, I have a different response. When I see it, it does something different on the, ooh, that's out of place. That shouldn't look like that. That needs to be painted. That's, that's not, and, and you wouldn't know anything different. You wouldn't know anything else about it, but it reveals my care and my value for it when I make the effort to correct it and change it. If you're not changing it, if you're not correcting it, it may be questionable whether you care about it. It says this in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse five. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves he chastens. If you're not being disciplined by the Lord, he doesn't love you. 
Well, let me tell you something. He loves you, loves every single one of us. Therefore, he makes the attempt and gives the effort to bring correction and discipline when necessary. He scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, have been trained by it. Here's the goal of, or, or here's how discipline should be given, administered in love. Administered in love. With the best interest of the child in mind. It brings them guidance and it allows for full spiritual development. i me tell you something, every time a child gets away with something natural, he connects that to the spiritual and thinks he gets away with it in the spirit. There's a connection these children make and it carries over. We are to be investing in our children's spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. We need to be watching over these, over these children. So the enemy, sure, of course he wants us to think that discipline is harmful. That's more, benefic more beneficial to the child to be negligent and allow them to determine their own way. Tell me, how has that ever worked out? Tell me what the result of that has ever been. It's not even biblical. This is what I find interesting in the book of Judges where we just read. The, the judges would come in and God said that the judges would deliver them. But you know what those judges never did? Discipline them. Does your child need a deliverer? You might find out that a disciplined child won't need as much delivering as an undisciplined child. A child that is given guidance and direction necessary and healthy to their lives can determine his path and see the path clearly and remain on the path. And you won't need God to deliver you out of so much stuff if you find that the discipline of God keeps me on the path that I'm supposed to be. The judges could not discipline. And this is the thing. There are certain things. The fathers should have been disciplining these children. The fathers that saw the water come out of the rock, the fathers that saw the wall of Jericho fall, the fathers that kept the statutes and the principles of God's word, the fathers that honored God should have been passing down, passing on these principles and statutes to their children, disciplining them and correcting behavior that was not in alignment. But now they're in need of a deliverer because they didn't have anyone bringing discipline into their lives. It's not 
the pastor's job. It's not the children's ministry's job. It's not the school's job. It's not the government's job to raise your children, to discipline your children. There are things that God has brought into society and invested into society that work great as supplements, but are terrible substitutes. No, there's no substitute for the father. There's no substitute for the mother. There's no substitute for that. There are supplements that can help you. But God has placed you in that family, in that role, as it pleases him. And he saw you. And whatever challenge you face, come on, I know we all got kids that are off the, off the rails. I'll be the first one to tell you. He might walk through these doors with a smile, but that's because he just got done wiping tears out of his face on the way here, just like I know you might have a talk with your kids on the way to church. You better not go in there and embarrass me in that place. That's the number one fear of a parent, I believe, is being embarrassed in church by their kids. I remember there was a, a, a family that attended our church and had uh, these three boys, and they were just fantastic, amazing, you know, awesome kids, just so well-behaved, quiet, well-mannered. And uh, I commended the, the mother for that. Man, you're, you're, you just have wonderful kids. They just, they, every time they come in, you're well-mannered, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am. Uh, have a conversation with you, look at you in the eye, great handshakes, you know, just the whole bit. I mean, I think they were in high school at the time, and, and uh, she said, well, I'd rather them do that here. That, you know, if they're going to pick one or the other, they're going to do it at home or do it here rather than do it here, insinuating that at home they're not the same. But she was okay as long as they get into the public place and you don't, don't, let, don't let my church family know what this family does is what she was saying. No, we have a responsibility to teach the word. We have a responsibility to correct the focus. That's what we're doing when we discipline. We're correcting. We're coaching. You're alongside saying, hey, no, that's the wrong way. We want to go this way. That's not how we want to do that. We want to do it this way. We want to be alongside coaching them in the love of God with their best interest. I mean, you know, so many times I find myself disciplining Camden for my own best interest, for me. Had nothing to do with you. I don't care if you ever figure it out. I just don't want to be embarrassed right now. I can do that. But no, we want to discipline with their best interest. Caring for them, knowing that they need godly counsel and godly guidance in their lives from an early age. And I don't want to discipline in a manner where he always needs me. I want to, I want to discipline in a manner where next time he'll make the decision on his own. It's godly discipline. You care about what you correct. The third way that we can preserve the promise, we need to teach the word. Value the word in your home and in your child's life. We need to correct the vision. We need to discipline, godly discipline. The third way is we need to guard the house. 
guard the house. While the Israelite while the Israelites were still in the wilderness, knowing that they were eventually going to be entering into the promised land and begin possessing the promised land and begin advancing the kingdom of God in that area and in that environment. God began to give instructions to what is to take place when they would enter a city, when they would enter and overtake a territory. He gave them clear instructions of what to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, in verse 16, it says, But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Watch this. Why? Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. What we saw happen in Judges chapter 2 was in direct contradiction to the command that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 20. They were allowing things to remain that ought to have been removed. And as a word to fathers, whatever is alive in your environment is your responsibility. Whatever you let breathe, whatever you let remain alive, whatever you harbor, whatever you decide is allowable or can be tolerated in your environment, your home, your community, your business, We've been given direct orders to remove some things. We've been given direct orders to lay waste, take hold of, and abolish certain things that if we don't overtake it, it will overtake us. That's what he's commanding the house right here. He's helping them understand that if you don't step up and take your place and your position and get rid of what should not be there, it's not going to disappear on accident. Let me tell you guys some things. There are some things that you've been praying would stop, that you've been praying would come to a halt. And I'm here to tell you today, you cannot pray it away. You will have to take action. Put the ax to the root and get rid of it yourself. Absolutely. I don't care how many times, how much time you spend in prayer. I don't care how much time you spend crying and weeping over it. 
But until you put necessary things around your life or around that environment that prevent the enemy to continue to work. See, here's the thing, is a lot of times, look, there are things that are attacking us from the outside. There are things that are coming against our families and our homes. And, and, and I know, especially parents, if you have children my age or younger, you know, even your teenagers, you have to be especially on guard for the outside attacks. But let me tell you how the enemy likes to work. The enemy likes to work from the inside out. He likes to get in and he likes to, 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 to infiltrate. And there are things that are tolerated that are presenting and posing a greater threat to your family and to your environment than any attack on the outside ever can. And, and you're harboring it. You're covering it. You're not really trying to get it straightened out. You don't really want to address the issue. And I'm telling you right now, it is a greater enemy to your family's thriving than anything that could come from the outside. And the crazy thing about this is this is the promised land, past tense. Which means they weren't going in to see if they could overtake this territory. They were going in with full domination. They were going in with the full authority that if we operate and act on behalf of our king, on behalf of our God, and we and he tells us to go in and obliterate this and abolish this and get rid of that, then we have the power and the potential to do it. It will not overtake you unless you let it. Guys, men, dads, nothing exists in your environment without your permission. If it's there, you've let it. If pornography remains, you've let it. If alcohol addiction remains, you let it. If wrath and anger and hatred just automatically comes out, you've let it. And you don't get on your hands and knees and pray for God to take away the addiction and pray for God to take away the anger. You do something about it. You take action. They had swords, they had weapons, and even more than that, they had a promise that if they went in to overtake it, God would go with them. He would not forsake them. He would not leave them. He said, be strong and of good courage, for I will be with you everywhere the sole of your foot steps. It belongs to you. You've just got to take action and fight the battle. We've got to guard the house. We've got to guard the house. We will not receive the promise until we remove the problem. Your promise is not being held back by God. In some cases, the promise isn't even being held back by the devil. It's being held back by our inefficiency, our inadequacy, our inability to stand on the word of God. Worship team, if you'd come. I'm charging you today. I'm challenging you today that the promise that God gave was never meant to die. In fact, if I can put it this way, you will die before the, God, before the promise dies. The goal is, will the promise stop with you or will you pass it on? 
will you pass it down? Number one, we've got to teach the word. Keep a value for the word of God in our homes and in our families. Charging every man in this, if you are not personally in some type of Bible reading program, you need to be daily. How on earth do we think we're going to parent and father and lead in this day and age without talking to the king? without hearing his word. You know what I hear so much today? And one of the issues with social media is we value ignorant opinions above the truth of God's word. How many times I've had to look at a social media post and work so hard on the inside not to comment or respond? because it doesn't do any good anyways. You don't change someone's heart with a comment on someone's social media post. Sometimes I do it just so I can feel a little bit better. But I know I'm not making any real impact in their life. We have elevated opinions above God's word. Have made God's word almost irrelevant in our society today. Do not let the number of churches fool you. Do not let the amount of radio stations and Christian music and podcasts fool you. Do not let the confusing number of people who call themselves Christians fool you. We are not living in a day where the word of God is thriving as it ought to. Guys, it's up to us. It's up to us. Let's take the responsibility to teach the word. Let's take the responsibility to discipline according to God's word. Do not pass up an opportunity to bring correction. Do not pass up the opportunity to to remove even the threat of the enemy operating in someone's life. First off, you've got to submit yourself to godly discipline and accountability. We have to develop an internal discipline before I try to discipline my child. I've got to make sure I'm in alignment. We've got to have a value for discipline. And it's nobody else's job but ours. And lastly, We've got to guard the house. We've got our, we need to set ourselves at the gate of your environment, the gate of your city, the gate of your home, and nothing comes in and nothing goes out without our permission. I dictate what happens in this house. I dictate what's on the TV. I dictate what we listen to. I dictate. Come on. We're doing too much overprotective, shadowing. The world is so afraid. The world's afraid to build a wall that says we're not going to allow this to come in. It's coming in our churches, guys. I've heard of churches singing 
secular songs on their platform where the glory and the presence of God ought to be stewarded and we're tampering with the anointing. We're tarnishing the presence of God for the sake of being relevant, for the sake of getting a few more people in the chairs. And guess what? Every one of them walks back out the door and says, well, it must be okay in my house if it's okay in God's house. It's not. We don't have the right to call unholy what God has called holy. We don't have the right to call common what God has called sacred. Stand up with me real quick, real quick. I just want us to take a moment, every person in here, father or not, man or not, every person in here, to just take an internal evaluation on all three of these levels. Am I teaching the word? Am I declaring the word? Do I know the word and value the word? Am I bringing discipline and correction when necessary? Am I submitting myself to godly discipline, counsel, and accountability when necessary? Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaith.austin.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.